For more information about the songs, writers, and artists featured here, please visit rabbitroom.com. Rabbit Room theme music composed and performed by Ben Shive. Welcome to The Rabbit Room. I'm Andrew Peterson. For the next several episodes of The Rabbit Room podcast, leading up to Easter Sunday, we are honored to present a series of sermons by Pastor Russ Ramsey of Oak Hills Presbyterian Church in Overland Park, Kansas. Russ describes them as a sermon series focused on the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday, examining the validity of Jesus' claim that no one would take his life from him, but that he'd lay it down of his own accord and take it up again on the third day. This next sermon is titled, Betrayal. And so we come now to a very pivotal night, the night of this betrayer's treacherous mission. When we read about it here in the Gospel of John, there's something that's good for us to understand about the way that the Bible is written, in particular the Gospels. The Gospel writers rarely, if ever, refer to themselves in the first person. So Matthew was one of the twelve disciples, but when he writes about himself, he doesn't refer to himself as I and me, but he refers to himself as Levi. You see this even in his own conversion account. He says Jesus was walking and there was Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. He's referring to himself, but he's telling the story this way. John does this as well in his gospel, and when we come to this point in the story, he starts to refer to himself with a particular expression. He starts to call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He says this here in verse 23 of our text. He says it in John 19, 26, in John 20, 20, or 22, 21, 7, and 21, 20. Now we know that John's talking about himself because this disciple whom Jesus loved is one who John knows intimate details about private moments that this disciple had. And we're going to see them in, in this text here as well. John's account of the Last Supper is one of these places where we see this detail of this eyewitness close proximity. And there's a good reason for the detail that John gives us. And that is that at the upper room during the Last Supper, John was seated right next to Jesus. He was right next to him around the table and he tells us this we see this it's fascinating to see this so he heard everything that Jesus said that night he was close enough to lean against Jesus and whisper into his ear so I want us to look at John's account of a necessary but terrible moment in the gospel in the last week of Jesus earthly ministry and that is the account of Judas departure into darkness and so I would invite all who are able to stand for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, all-sufficient word, John chapter 13, verses 21 to 30. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? 
And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread, and when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. This is God's word. You may be seated as we pray. Heavenly Father, this story is so much the continuation of the story of Christmas. It's not even funny. This is the tale to be told. This is the reason we celebrate a baby born in a manger, was that he came to live a life that we couldn't live and to die in our place, a real death. Father, would you help us to see the sober weight of this, but also the glory of your grace through this. Father, we thank you that at no point along the way, from the angel appearing to Mary, telling her that she is going to conceive a child, to the actual crucifixion itself, that nowhere along the way did our Lord and Savior stop or take another path, or abandon his mission, but that he followed to the end. Father, would you help us to see the detail of the story here, and would you make it real in our minds, that we would understand that this is not an allegory, but something that happened. And would you search our hearts to see where our lives and our hearts might overlap with Judas. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, if you remember from last week, this text picks up immediately after the text that we read last week. So these words that he says here, he's just finished washing his disciples' feet. He's just finished going around that table, taking all of their feet in his hands and washing them. He's just finished explaining to his disciples how each and every one of them needed him. They needed him to make them clean. And he said, if you remember from last week, not all of you are clean. He said, one of you has lifted his heel against me. And this is something that you see Jesus do where he speaks in allegory. He speaks in code. He speaks in euphemism. And yet here when we come to today's text, Jesus moves from euphemism to something that is just very direct. He says, truly I say to you, one of you, one of you will betray me. And their reaction is fantastic and it fills me with hope. It just fills me with hope. Because they understood what he said and they were deeply saddened. But the question that they asked, and you can see this in, um, in Mark's gospel, Mark 14, is they asked, is it, is it me? Is it me? And I just think that there's so much hope in that question that these disciples had been with Jesus long enough to understand that if this is something that one of them was capable of, it was something that any of them were capable of. And they didn't know if it was them or if it was the other guy. And they wanted to know, Lord, is it me? Is it me? And this is such a better question to ask. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is to understand that we're really capable 
of all manner of transgression against him and against his law and we desperately need him to put us right and the disciples asking this question is just very telling to me of what they had learned in their three years with Jesus it's easy to fix on the divinity of Christ in the Easter story and in the Christmas story to the point that we really forget his humanity that we just think well it was was the Son of God it was the second person of the Blessed Trinity and he's kinda going through these events but he's sort of stoically remaining in control of himself and he's just kind of saying things in a very declarative sort of voice as though it's just kind of matter of fact and this is what's gonna happen and this is what's gonna happen next but as Hebrews 4.15 reminds us Jesus was one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet was without sin. And this moment in the upper room is a sober example of the truth of this statement of Jesus being tempted in a way that people are tempted and feeling the struggle with it. John tells us Jesus here is troubled in his spirit. He's troubled. He's upset. This in the upper room is your Savior in deep anguish and even anxiety. He's emotionally raw. How do we know that? Well, we know it because John tells us here that he was troubled in his spirit. And then later, as we follow this story out, Luke is the one who tells us about Jesus being in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours later, and he's, and he's so stressed that he's sweating and his sweat contains droplets of blood and you see an escalation don't you at the beginning of the meal he's troubled in his spirit and by the end of the night he's so filled with anxiety and stress and anguish that his sweat is mixed with drops of blood which is a condition that is brought on by incredible pressure and so you see a trajectory that Jesus is on emotionally here To understand this struggle that he's going through, all we need to do is just imagine the scene as John and the other disciples describe it. It's the holidays. For some of us, it's a time when family gets together, and for some of us, that's not real comfortable. If you've ever been at a table where it's been very clear that there's one person at the table who is just bitterly angry with another person at the table, everybody knows. It's just palpable. You can feel that tension. You can sense it. Imagine this is the table that you're sitting at. Now imagine that the one who is angry with the other actually is planning to kill them. Now imagine on top of that that the one he's planning to kill knows it. That's the table that they're sitting at. That's the context of the supper that Jesus is having with his disciples. And John gives us this beautiful description of at least a portion of the seating chart at the table. Now, we don't know exactly where everybody was, but we do know things about proximity. And I want us to unfold this and see this description He describes this. He tells us that he's sitting next to Jesus. We know that he's next to Jesus because he was close to Jesus, it tells us, and that when he went to ask Jesus who the betrayer was, he leaned against him. 
So he had to be right next to him. So he's leaning against him. We also learn that Judas also sat very close to Jesus at this meal. He sat within reach. Some have speculated perhaps he was on the other side, that it was Judas and then Jesus and then John. We don't know, but what we do know is that Judas was within reach, that Jesus could hand him the bread and he could take it. And we know that Jesus could speak directly to Judas across the table. So here's the description that John gives us. Jesus says there's a betrayer in the room. And then in verse 24, or 23 and 24, we'll just, I'll just read it and then we'll unpack it real quick. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So he's right there. <clears throat> so Simon Peter motions to that disciple to ask Jesus of whom he's speaking. So John's there, Jesus is there, Simon Peter's across the table perhaps, and he's saying to John, who is it? Ask him. Ask him. And so John leans over. That's what it says. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, says to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus says to John, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Now that's fascinating because if you've read the gospel accounts, perhaps like me, you've wondered, how do you get these to work together? Because on the one hand, you have these examples where it seems like nobody knew who the betrayer was. And then you have this account in John where Jesus is saying, I'm going to dip this piece of bread in this bowl and hand it to the betrayer. Wouldn't everybody know? And if we read it carefully, we see John is saying, this was kind of a private exchange. That something only John and Peter, if he was watching, would have understood what was going on. That Jesus was identifying Judas, but he was doing it in such a way that the rest of the text requires that nobody else really picked up on what he was doing. No one else really understood that what Jesus was doing here was telling John that Judas was the betrayer. And we know that because when Judas got up to leave, they thought he was going to just take care of disciple business. You know, that that's what he was going to do. And it seems that even Judas doesn't really seem to understand the action at first because he takes the bread. He takes the bread from Jesus. Now when Jesus hands the bread to Judas... He says to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. And although the other disciples didn't know why he said this, Judas understood. And I want you to imagine this moment. I want you to imagine it here between Judas and Jesus. Imagine first just the proximity. Look around you. Somebody who's one to two seats away. That's Jesus and Judas. That's how close they are. So there's the proximity. Now imagine Jesus taking bread and dipping it in a bowl and then offering it to Judas. Imagine Judas doesn't really know why he's doing it and in his customary way takes the bread from Jesus and says, thanks. But Jesus locks in on him and he's still holding it as Judas is holding it. And he says, what you're going to do Let's get on with it. Imagine everything that Judas would have seen in Jesus' eyes in that moment. Imagine everything Jesus would have seen in Judas' eyes in that moment. He was deeply troubled. He was deeply, deeply troubled. Dorothy Sayers wrote a play about Jesus called The Man Born to Be King. 
And she wrote about a struggle that she had in trying to understand what drove Judas so that she could tell the story. And she writes of this, saying that she would ask herself, what did the man imagine he was doing? It's a great question. What did Judas, what did Judas think he was doing here? She says he's an absolute riddle. He can't have been awful from the start or Christ never would have called him. Judas is a riddle. He really is. I don't understand him. And I think that's part of the point for us, is to recognize that he's not a caricature. What drove him? We know that he was greedy. We know that he kept the money bag and that he skimmed money off of the top. But it doesn't quite carry to say then the reason that he betrayed Jesus was for the money, because think about it. He's been walking around with Jesus now for three years of his life. Three years of his life. And what the chief priests offer him is 30 pieces of silver, which is worth about four months' wages. And we know that Judas was an economically-minded man. What economically-minded man would say four months' wages is worth three years of service? Maybe it was a moment that he just got into, but, but we really don't know. No one can really say conclusively everything that drove Judas, but there are things that we do know about him, things that we just know as a fact. And I want to give you two of them because they're just incredible. The first thing that we know about Judas is we know the man that he seemed to be. We know the man that he seemed to be. He seemed to be a devoted disciple who did exactly the same things as the others. Even here in the upper room, he has concealed his duplicity so well that when Jesus declares, one of you will betray me, no one is pointing at Judas saying, I'll bet it's him. They're not suspecting that from him at all. If it's one of them, it might as well be any of them. Judas was one who did the other things that the disciples did. He witnessed miracles from Jesus. He was sent by Jesus with the other disciples into towns and villages to preach the gospel, which he did. He heard Jesus' parables. He saw the way that Jesus interacted with the religious, with the sinners. He saw all of it. He was part of it. To look at Judas, what you saw was this. You see a man who just seems to have a very close walk with Jesus, just like the other 11. This is a little nerve-wracking, isn't it? The second thing that we know about Judas is that although he was destined by God for this role, he acted under the influence of Satan. He acted under the influence of the devil. This is the word of God. John labors to make us understand that it wasn't just that Judas was indifferent. It wasn't just that he was indifferent to Jesus or that he was looking to make a quick buck. He was acting in collusion with the devil. He talks about it in this text. He talks about it in John 6 and in John 13. Now think of it. Think of everything that Judas had seen and heard. Every miracle, every parable, every sermon, every act of mercy, every unimpeachable rebuke. And none of his words, none of Jesus' words, none of his miracles, none of that penetrated Judas' heart. And he's a riddle for this. How can this be? He's part pragmatist, he's part pretender, he's part conspirator. 
Maybe even if you asked him, he wouldn't be able to explain. He probably wouldn't be able to explain why he did what he did. I mean, he has this moment of remorse when he tries to return the silver. Who knows? But what he became was what Robert Rayburn describes so eloquently and powerfully that I just had to quote him on this. He describes Judas as the archetype of all traitors, Judas Iscariot, perhaps the most dishonored name in the history of mankind. I mean, that is weighty. The archetype of all traitors, perhaps the most dishonored name in the history of mankind. Now, no one at the table except Jesus knew. No one. For Jesus, who's the head of this feast, to offer bread to Judas, this is an understood honor that he's paying. This is the host of the meal feeding a guest giving him the food from his own hand. It's a gesture of love. And it's an opportunity for Judas to consider the bond, to consider their history together. This is the moment of history that is the hinge for Judas right here. It's the bread in his hand. And what you're going to do, do it quickly. It just kills me. Because he could have rethought. He could have said, what am I thinking? And instead, his mind is made up and he takes the bread from Jesus' hand and he leaves. And I just kind of wonder if he unaffectedly just popped that bread into his mouth and was still chewing on it when he left the room. Everyone figured that since he was in charge of the money, he was going to do the things that are sort of obligatory for the Passover, that he was either going to settle a tab or that he was going to give the customary Passover alms to the poor on the behalf of the disciples, which is just rich with irony. And they were all wrong. John writes from the perspective of somebody who saw this moment unfold. And he gives us a poetic flourish. John was a poet, and he wrote with a lot of color. And he tells us something that is really going on when Judas leaves. He writes, Judas went out, and it was night. Don't miss this. John is the one who uses light and darkness throughout his gospel. You see it in the very first chapter when he's talking about the birth of Jesus and the light of the world has come. He talks about Jesus as the light of the world in six or seven places. You can see references there in your handout. So when Judas is leaving and John is saying, and it was night, he's painting this description of a man who is abandoning the light of the world to step irreversibly out into darkness. That's the picture. And I love it. I love that John's just not writing a newspaper story, but that he's telling us something that has, has texture to it. Judas' departure wouldn't just lead to Jesus' death, but to his own. Now, what are we to do? 
with this part of the story of the last week of Jesus' life. I want you to see, and really we haven't made a lot of application yet, I've just wanted you to see the moment as best as you can in your imagination, to take the details that we find in God's Word and to try to put them in place, to see the proximity and the conversation and the history. But what are we supposed to do with this? There's one very obvious haunting application for us, and that is to remember that no one at Jesus' table knew that Judas was a pretender, that only Judas and Jesus knew this, and to see that still Jesus was gracious with Judas to the end. He was gracious with him to the end. He never kicked him to the curb. He even gave him a seat that was close to his in that upper room, and he left the door open for Judas to repent knowing what was in Judas's heart, knowing what Judas had been ordained to do. Jesus is gracious with him to the end. And in the end, Judas' path takes him where it was destined to go, out into darkness, into his own doom. But Judas has a unique role in history, and that is that he alone was ordained to finally betray and hand over Christ to his crucifixion. He did what he was ordained to do. And so I ask you the question, is Christ offering you the bread of reconciliation today? I believe in a God who calls people to himself. I'm a Calvinist. I believe this. And I believe that God is a God of means and that he uses means to do this. And so I ask, is he speaking to you right now through the example of Judas? Are you pretending? This is the third week in a row we've been talking about Judas here and his proximity to Jesus and how proximity alone could not save him. If you are a pretender, there's only two here who know it. And that's, the, and that's you and Christ, who is here just as sure as you are. There is grace and there is joy to be found in Jesus because he did not turn away from the mission for which he had come to accomplish redemption and salvation for those who would trust in him. But don't miss from our text, this is not a game. This is not a game. Judas reminds us, you can sit under solid teaching. You can spend time with other believers. You can participate in ministry. You can go on mission trips. Judas did. He did all of that. And you can still be a fraud. Being known as a Christian and loving Jesus are two different things. Having a history of being in and around the church and being a part of the bride of Christ are two entirely different things. When we look at the story of betrayal, we see an unvarnished truth of what resides in the heart of a man. His willingness to do this. And we think, what did Jesus ever do to deserve such venom from this man. 
And we see that the story unfolding here in the pages of Scripture really pivots on this fulcrum of betrayal, of Jesus betrayed, of the Son of God betrayed. But we miss the point if we think that Jesus went to the cross simply because Judas betrayed Him. Are you following me? Jesus went to the cross because mankind as a whole has betrayed the relationship with God that we were meant for, exchanging it for what amounts to a pittance. And for what many of us, when we get to the ends of our lives and look at, say, if I could return this, I would. Judas only represents a cross-section of the betrayal that led Jesus to the cross. But also understand from the title of this series, which is taken from John's Gospel, no one, no one took his life from him. He had authority and he alone had authority to lay it down and authority to take it back up again. So Jesus did not go to the cross as a martyr or as Judas' helpless victim. All throughout this series, one of the joys for me as a preacher and as a, a student of the Word has been to see the strength of Jesus in this week leading up to His death. Just to see the strength of Christ here. To see the steely resolve that He has to finish what He had come to do. And even here in the upper room with His disciples with His heart broken over a friend's betrayal. And I call Him a friend because how is it a betrayal if there isn't a bond of friendship? Three years they had been together. And Jesus again puts his strength on display. We're going to talk about this next week. But just consider what he does as Judas leaves. Jesus reaches for another loaf of bread and the table and he gets his disciples' attention. And he talks to them about what he's going to do in a minute. And he takes that bread in his hands before them Judas is walking through the streets of Jerusalem right now and he tears it, telling them and showing the remaining 11 what is about to happen. Brothers and sisters, for his part, Jesus did not disappear into the darkness. He didn't. No sorrow, no loss, no betrayal would turn him from the purpose for which he had come, which was to die in the place of sinners who are not only capable but guilty of betraying the relationship with God that we were created to know and enjoy. So as you see Judas go out into the darkness, I pray that you would also see in this text Jesus, the light of the world, staying there at that table to give his church a sign of their shortness, I pray that you would also see in this text Jesus, the light of the world, staying there at that table to give his church a sign of their sure redemption in him. He stays unshakably dedicated to his mission to die in the place of sinners. He loves you. Do you love him? This has been episode 15 of the Rabbit Room Podcast, produced at the Warren outside of Nashville, Tennessee.